0: Mark chapter 6 is where we'll be. We'll look at verses 30 through 44 this morning. Um, when I first moved here, it was Jess and Finn, and Finn was a baby at this time. Finn's now 12 years old, so I've been here a little over 10 years. And we ha- we did not have anything. We we came here with very little money, no people, and um, no strategy. So it was the recipe for a wonderful church plant to begin. And so we moved here, and, and, and here's, the, here's the crazy thing about it. I rarely had doubts that it was going to work out. And I don't know why. Like, I don't know if I was just insane then or what, but I rarely had doubts. Here, here's the here's funny thing. Now, we, we have more people, more resources, more strategy, and we have a permanent space and all that. I have more worries now than I did then. So I have more like, are we going to make it thoughts now? And that's just when I'm like not thinking healthy, I'm not saying I'm thinking this all the time, but... I think that sometimes, like, is this going to work? Like, why would I think that now and not then? And so, so here's a couple things. Back then, if I didn't have something, I had to ask for it. Like, okay, we don't have people, God, so God, will you bring us people? God, we don't have money, God. God, will you bring us money? God, we don't know where we're going to meet. God, would you provide a place for us to meet? So I'm praying and I'm asking more then than sometimes I do that I want to admit now. Now I think, okay, well, I've, got, I, I've preached for several years, we have a building, we have resources, we have people, we have a staff, you know, we'll just go there and do it again. Like, so I'm not thinking as much presently going, okay, God, this is what we need from you. And so what did that leave me? It left me more, uh, having these, the resources and not trusting God, and leaves me more worried and more anxious sometimes, because I don't think I need things from him like I really do. Now I tell you that story to be transparent, and honest, but also I tell you that story because I want to draw out something that's probably going on in your own life. Maybe you've had a situation where you've had to run to Christ because you're in a you're in a difficult situ- time and you're you're suffering or you're in a crisis, and so you run to Him and you begin to ask Him, God, would you save me from the situation? Would you get me out of this? Would you help me fight this sin? Would you help me overcome this? And so then you trust Him and you walk Him, and then when I, when that crisis is somewhat averted or it's gone away. Then you begin to say, thanks God, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. And we rarely think that we need him when we have the resources when things are going well. When things are going well. And so when is it that we begin to learn to trust God, not just in the crisis, but when things are going on all the time? That we always need him. So how do we get there? Well, the first thing we have to understand and realize is we have to know the kind of God that we serve. We have to know who God is and how generous and how how much he wants to bless you and how much he promises that he's going to come through for you and that he does come from you, not just in the crisis, but in all situations. And so that's what I want us to see here in the text, is a God who provides for his people. In Mark chapter 6, we're going to see the story known as the feeding of the 5,000 where Jesus goes to a crowd that is somewhat shallow. They're asking Jesus, they want Jesus to feed them, and Jesus feeds them. Now, but what I want you to see is that even Jesus is um, generous to a crowd who's somewhat shallow, and if he's willing to do that with a crowd who's shallow, how much more is he willing to do that for his own people? And that's what we're going to see in Mark chapter 6. Mark 6 We'll start in verse 30. The word of God says this: "The apostles returned to Jesus, and they told him all that ha- they had done and taught, And they said to him, "Come away, by, uh, to, by, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest awhile. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, Jesus, when he went ashore, he saw the great crowd and had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And, notice this, he began to teach them many things. Crowds and crowds of people are following Jesus at this point. Jesus has, and as you're seeing Mark begin to unfold, it seems like the crowds increase by every single chapter. Jesus is somewhat like a rock star as far as how many people are trying to follow him and flock to him. It's sort of like Woodstock. People are leaving their, their towns and their villages and their homes. They're sort of living in tents, and they're eating all, all the, any kind of food they can find just to see another miracle or just to hear another thing that Jesus would say. Because Jesus taught and Jesus did things that people have never seen before. And so here you have these crowds of people, and then at the same time you have the disciples who are working tirelessly to spread the kingdom of God. And here the disciples are, they're weary and they're tired. They just saw one of their friends, John the Baptizer, uh, they heard that he got his head cut off. And so they go and they try to give him a proper burial. And so they're tired. And when Jesus sees the disciples, he says, hey, I want you to make sure you find rest. Go to a desolate place. Well, that doesn't work out very well, does it? The, The crowds of people began to follow then the disciples. And we're told later that the crowd of people was 5,000 men. The text says 5,000 men, and this is why we call it the feeding of the 5,000. But in actuality, it's it's really about 15,000 people. Because in those days when they counted people, they counted the head of the household. They counted the men saying, this is how many family units we have when really there's about 15,000 people, if you count the men, women, and children, so it's really the, 15, the, the feeding of the 15,000. Like, this would be like one-third of an ECU football game. Imagine this, that, that size crowd tailgating and following Jesus, except for they're tailgating in the desert. So I don't understand why people would tailgate if they're Arizona fans. Like, how does that work, right? First of all, being an Arizona fan is a problem. Like, right, Kirk Birch? He's the in in this room. But um, But so th- that's, what, that's what happens. They're tailgating out in the desert, following Jesus around, and now Jesus finds them. And the text says that when he sees this crowd, he has compassion for them. And then it says in verse 34 that because he had compassion with, for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. This is an interesting statement. And it's actually a phrase that shows up multiple times throughout the Old Testament. And it shows up multiple times when the Israelites had a leader that wasn't leading them right. When he has a leader that wasn't leading them morally or following God's law. And so he would say, the Israelites now are like, a sh- like sheep without a shepherd. And what would happen Every single time the Israelites' leader would do that, Jesus, or God, rather, would, would provide a shepherd for them by becoming their shepherd. He's like, I will become your shepherd. In fact, it says this in Ezekiel 34, verse 11. It says, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. And as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep, and that have been scattered, so I will seek out my own sheep, and I will rescue them. He's saying, I am the shepherd that's going to come in and rescue my sheep. Later on in Ezekiel, he actually says, David will become your shepherd. And he's saying, David's going to be one to provide you for, give you the true shepherd. So Jesus now is saying, I am that true shepherd. I'm going to come in and take this crowd and I'm going to teach them. I'm going to shepherd them. I'm going to lead them. And it shouldn't be no surprise that Earlier in Mark 6, we see Herod is the governor. He's the one who's supposed to be leading these people, but he only cares for himself. He, he beheads John the baptizer because he wanted to save face. He's only looking after his own interests. That's why he's a bad shepherd. So Jesus is saying, you need a good shepherd. I'm going to step in and I'm going to lead you. And let me show you how. Verse 35. And when it grew late, his disciples came in and said... This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away into the surrounding court, uh, countryside and villages. This is what the disciples are telling Jesus to do. Tell them to go away into the court, court, uh, court side, countryside and the villages and to buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered to his disciples, he said, you give them something to eat. Some of your translations says, you feed them. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? They're saying, how is this going to work, Jesus? we got 15,000 mouths to feed, and I'm, our idea was, let's just send them out into the villages and they get their own food. And Jesus like, no, let them stay here, but you feed them. And so they're saying, okay, how are we, are we going to have to raise them with money? 200 denarii is a lot of money. It's not not like 200 American dollars. 200 denarii is like half a a year's salary for someone. So he's like, this is like saying, hey, I want you to get tens of thousands of dollars together to make this work. This is what the disciples are saying. This is going to cost tens of thousands of dollars to feed all these people. This is one third of an ECU tailgate. Can can you imagine how many Chick-fil-A sandwiches we're going to need to make this work, Jesus? And Jesus says, you feed them. And so how? Notice Jesus' response. Verse 38 says, And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they went, they had found out, and he said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them to sit down in groups in the the green grass. So they sat down by the hundreds and the fifties. Now, it's interesting. This story... Shows up in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This shows you how significant this story is. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, show the feeding of the 5,000 or 15,000, whatever you want to call it. Now, John tells us more of how they received this, these, these five loaves and two fish. John actually says it this way in John 6 8, he says, One of the disciples. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five uh, barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So we find out that Jesus, one of Jesus' disciples, this is how they get the five loaves and two fish. One of Jesus' disciples goes and finds this little boy. And he brings it. I don't know if the little boy is just a sweetheart and just gives it up, or Andrew is just a mean bully to say, hey, we're going to take these, this food from you and bring it to Jesus. The, the two fish, by the way, probably weren't a mahi either, okay? In those days, if you had bread, you would eat it with like a fish, but it would be like a garnish. It would be like the size of a minnow. Five loaves, two fish. These were like minnow-sized fish. This is like a Hebrew Happy Meal. That's what this is. This is like a snack pack. How are we going to make this happen with a Lunchable? Jesus, why did, why did you bring this little kid's Lunchable and think it's going to work for 15,000 people? Now, the other point I want to make is there's no significance to the numbers. There's no significance that there's five loaves. There's no significance that there's two fish. It could be a half a lobe, and it could be a half a fish. Jesus was going to do the same thing. And what's important is not the number, but what Jesus does with it. Notice what Jesus does. 41. Taking the five loaves, the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave to them, to his disciples, to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, among all 15,000 people. And it says, verse 42, I love this, and they ate and were satisfied and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. This is the provision of Jesus Christ. What seemed logically impossible to make happen, Jesus makes it in an instant. Jesus takes the small meal and he multiplies it by himself. Jesus takes this small thing, and once it touches the hands of Jesus, it's now multiplied. In the Old, in the Old Testament, there's a similar story where Moses is leading God's people, the Israelites, into the, out through the wilderness. And God provides for his people by just raining manna, food, down from heaven. And the text actually says in Exodus 16 that the people were given what they needed. But the contrast that we see with Jesus is that Jesus gave an abundance of provision. It doesn't just say they they had what they needed. It says that they all ate and they were satisfied, so much so that Luke's gospel says there was actually leftovers that the disciples took. This is the provision of Jesus. And by the way, this passage shows nothing of the crowd's faith it shows nothing of the disciples' faith to make this happen. In fact, the, the disciples are skeptical. Nothing that happens, happens based on man's effort. It's all rests on the provision of God. This miracle that takes place. In fact, according to John's gospel, the crowd was pretty shallow. The next day, the same crowd of people that were fed try to find Jesus, and they ask him for more bread. Jesus tells them in in, in John 6, verse 26, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. This is a shallow crowd of people. They didn't even want to know what Jesus taught. They just knew, okay, we're just grateful that you've given us bread. Now we want more. When are you going to give us more, Jesus? So if Jesus is willing to do this, With a shallow crowd of people, my question to you is how much more would he do for his own family? How much would he do for his own children? There's another place where Jesus does this, and he's he's talking to his disciples, and Jesus tells the disciples, hey, I'm going to send you out on a mission, and I, I want you to go, and I want you to spread the kingdom of God with me, and I don't want you to take anything with you. In fact, it even shows up earlier in this very chapter. Mark 6, verse 8, he says, And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Don't even take an extra change of clothes. Don't take a, a, a book bag. Don't take a sleeping bag. Don't take a pillow. How many of you want to travel with your favorite pillow? I'm one of those guys. Got to have two pillows. Got to sleep with one and have one that I wrap my arms around for some reason. And Jesus is like, don't worry about it. Can you imagine planning a trip to Florida with Jesus? What are we going to wear? Don't worry about it. Oh, how much money do we need to bring? Don't worry about it. With Jesus, we wear the same clothes. Like, the disciples are probably like, man, if we wear these same clothes, like, we ain't never going to find a wife. Like, we're going to stink after a while. Don't worry about it. How much money do we need? To don't worry about it. Like all of these different things that are happening, Jesus is like, don't worry about it. Just follow me. I'm going to provide. And so you can imagine the frustration of what it's like to follow Jesus, saying, "I'm supposed to, you've already asked me to leave my family. You've already asked me to leave my home. You're sending me out into we don't even know where. And you're telling me, don't bring anything. And so can you imagine now the contrast? You look at this contrast. Earlier in chapter 6, they're not bringing anything. Now... They see Jesus feed 15,000 people, and all of them are satisfied, and the disciples are 12 of those 15,000. Can you imagine now how they begin to feel about who Jesus is? Jesus begins to, to ease their anxiety, knowing that he is the one who provides. There's another place in Luke's gospel, in Luke 12, where the disciples come to Jesus and they're anxious, and they're asking Jesus, how he's going to come through for them. And I love what Jesus tells them in Luke 12, and I hope that this text rests with you if you're struggling with trusting God and his provision. Luke 12, verse 22, he says to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Don't be anxious about what you will eat, nor about your body or what you'll put on. For life is more than food, and the body is more... Than clothing. Then he says, Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They neither have a storehouse nor a barn. And yet, what does God do? He says, He feeds them. Then he says, Of how much more value are you than the birds? You ever seen a raven before? A raven is an ugly bird, it's like a rat with wings. He's like, if I'm going to do this for a rat with wings, if I'm going to feed a rat with wings, how much more would I do for my own children? He goes on, Luke 12, 27. He says, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass... Which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven. How much more? How much more will I clothe you? He says, all you of little faith. This is the provision of Jesus. And so if we learn to trust the Lord, we have to begin to believe how God provides for his own. That he's a gracious God. Now this doesn't mean that he gives you whatever you want. It doesn't mean that God is like a pinata that you approach him or you push him or you manipulate him to do this, this certain things so that all the trinkets will come out of him and you get whatever you want. That's not how he operates. He's telling. You, he's just showing you how he provides for his own. And here's the thing: this story, this narrative, actually isn't about the crowd's need. For food, rather, it's a story about God's provision for his people. Look at 34 again. When Jesus saw that they were hungry, it says that he had compassion for them because he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then he says he began to teach them many things. Their greatest need to them was food. What he saw was, you need to hear from me. You need me. That's what you need. And so he, but at the same time, he still feeds them. So he knows what they really need, but then they're still hungry, and so he feeds them. And so the question is, as we read this, how do we deal with this tension of trusting God to provide for us physical things, material things, and yet not finding our hope and joy in the things that we are asking him to provide. How do we deal with this tension? How do we say, okay, God, I'm asking you to feed me. I'm asking you to clothe me. I'm asking you to feed my children. I'm asking you to clothe my children. I'm asking you to protect me. But how do we have this tension to where we don't find joy in those things that he provides? Are you all tracking with that question? It's an important question to ask. You are. Good. Some of you are. Fantastic. Good. I'll work with you, too. Thank you. Um, in John's gospel, when John, te- John tells us the same narrative, the feeding of the 5,000, he actually shows this tension. Earlier I showed you that the crowd uh, was pretty shallow. They, they asked Jesus the next day, when are you going to bring us more food? And John shows us how they wanted more, but he brings them to something else. He says, I know you want more bread, but let me bring you to something else. John 8, I'll read it. Verse 30. This is the crowd coming to Jesus. This is what they said. What sign will you perform then? If you're not going to give us more bread, how do we trust you is what they're asking. What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate manna in the desert. And as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So he's like, Jesus, if, if you're like him, you should give us bread to eat. And Jesus said, Moses, surely I say to you, Moses did not give you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Moses, surely I say to you, Moses did not give you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. I read it again because I copied it twice for some reason, but you heard it twice and it gets the point. Good. 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then he said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus then said to them, I love this, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. What's the challenge here? Well, they were coming to Jesus only for the material things that he could offer, but they weren't coming to Jesus because they believed that Jesus in and of himself was enough. So their relationship with Jesus, their worship of Jesus, was shallow. You ever had a shallow friend? Aren't they the worst? I had a guy, uh, when I, first year of college, I was away in upstate New York, and I had a car, so I would drive back and forth between North Carolina, where I grew up, and New York. And there was this guy he knew I lived close to where his hometown was. He was in a different state, but not far away. And 14-hour drive from, from, where, I, from where I grew up and where I went to school, and he didn't have a car. And so he would always ask me, because he knew I lived close to where he lived, on the way back, would you mind dropping me off? Right, I'm like, okay, sure, man, no, no problem. Wouldn't talk to me the whole semester, to the very end of a break, the very end of semester. Homeboy would find me and say, it was like it was like clockwork. Like a week before we're leaving, I'm in the cafeteria. I hear Tugwell. I'm like, oh boy, here we go. Hey man, can I bum around? When are you leaving? What time are you leaving? Like all of a sudden he like cares, you know, and he's like starts to ask. Like, so I knew it was shallow. I knew what it was. So I said, okay, you can come with me. Man. No problem. No problem at all. I think it was spring break. He drives back. He's driving with me. And he's one of those guys, man. Can we listen to something different? I'm like, yeah, sure. Okay. Can we turn the AC down a little bit? Okay. All right. Can we stop here? I don't, I don't like that restaurant. Oh, man, come on, dude. You know, you know, if you get this kind of gas. I'm like, seriously, dude? Like, are, are we really doing this? Right? And then I'm 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 sitting there, and he's like, "Hey man, if you want me to drive for a while and you can get some rest," I say, "That's a great 14 hour drive. I'll do it." So we switch. I'm sleeping. The next thing I know, we are on the side of the road, in nowhere West Virginia. And he's like, "I don't know what happened, man. It just broke down. I don't know what." I was like, "Oh dang, what? You know, I don't know, man." He wouldn't explain it to me. It was kind of short. I guess it broke down. And I was like, okay, all right. Uh, so my dad had, a, at that time, a big truck He could tow it. So I, I called my dad, and my dad said, i have to be there tomorrow. I've got this happening. So I, I'm, I'm trying to make plans. My dad gets us a hotel, and we're going to stay in. This dude says, hey, man, i got a friend that lives not far from me. I'm just going to call him. And like he leaves me on the side of the road with a broke-down car and goes with his friend. I'm like, have fun. Great. I I'll, I'll, I'll hope I live, you know. And I'm not making, like, we, I go, we get the car towed, back, we get it fixed, go back to school. Saw the guy from across campus. He did one of these. Kept walking. He wasn't like, oh, you're alive, right? How's the car? Duh, 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 duh. No question. Didn't talk to me the whole semester until one week before the semester ends. What does he do? Cafeteria. Getting food. Getting chicken patties. What do I hear? Tugwell. I'm like, car's full. Sorry, dude. Shut him down. Relationship over, right? Why was the relationship that way? Because it was only contingent upon what I could do for him. It was only contingent upon the free ride. Now, I tell you that story because oftentimes people do this with their relationship with God. Say, God, I'm going to come to you now, but... I'm not going to come to you in irregular seasons. This is a tough season for me. And I see it with couples, married couples. We're in a crisis. We're in a difficult time. Maybe I've seen a couple before that, maybe there's an unfaithfulness in the marriage. Saying, oh, I think he's going to move with this other lady, and this is just heartbreaking. Or she's going to move with another man, and this is heartbreaking. So they come and they want to talk and they begin to open up and they begin to share. Okay, it's not just this situation, but we've had other situations like this, and here's some of the darkness that's happened in our marriage. And it begins to begin to see kind of a a picture of of what the marriage is like and how unhealthy it is. They begin to share, they begin to dig in and say, Man, this is what's going on. It's just bad. It's just really bad. So, what's your goal? I hope that they, I hope we can get back together. And what happens? You work with them for a while and then. They begin to kind of press into community, they begin to kind of press into scripture and allow God to kind of do some things and then they end up being back together. And what, all, what often happens is they go, okay, we're back together, we don't have to deal with anything anymore. Problem solved. And I'm like, whoa, 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 it doesn't work that way. This is, this is a wake-up call for you to see how unhealthy things are. But this is not the main problem. But what they do is they think, that's the main problem. If we can get this thing fixed, then we're we're cured. We're good. We can go back to normal and live our lives. And what happens is they go back to normal. What happens? Because they never dealt with the real issue, it happens again and again and again until the marriage is over. Why? Because they only went to deal with the tragedy or the circumstance, but not the heart This is the same thing that happens with the crowd. We're hungry. Give us food. That's all they could see is the tragedy in front of them, not their real need. Not to hear from Jesus. Not to allow Jesus to to fill their heart. Not to allow Jesus to give them true joy. That's what they were trying to escape. They thought bread is what we need. That's going to make us happy. No, that's what's going to keep you alive right now. But you need Christ. People do this with parenting. I see it all the time. Parents with young babies, they say, man, we're not on the same page about parenting. Welcome to the real world, right? Who's on the same page about parenting, right? We can't put him to sleep at the right time. How do we do this? And okay, he's staying awake, and I don't know who gets up. Who's supposed to get up tonight? We, we, you did it last night. I'm going to do it tonight. And it begins to show this, this sort of unhealthiness that happens in marriage or bad communications that happens in marriage. What happens and they finally figure out the art of putting the kid to sleep? Our marriage is better. It's like, no, that was showing you there was things in your marriage that weren't great. You've got to press into those or you're going to keep having the same problems. I see it with people that fall into sin. They say, man, I've fallen into sin and, and I, can't, I, I looked at something I shouldn't have looked at on the computer and now I've got this shame and I've just got this guilt and I need some accountability. So they meet with somebody for a while and they say, oh, I'm not struggling with that anymore. So I'm good. Thanks for working with me. No, that's the wake-up call. It's showing you there's something deeper that's happening where you're not l- running to Christ. This is why Jesus tells the crowd when he sees them. He says, look, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. I I don't want you just to think about the material, quick things that you need that you think are going to fix your life. I want you to run to me because I'm the bread of life. And if you run to me, you actually won't be hungry anymore. You won't want those other things. You'll love me more and you'll love those things less. That's what Jesus is bringing them back to. If, if, If you believe to me, you'll never thirst again. But so often, friends... We treat Jesus just like the guy who wanted the free ride. Jesus, hey man, I'm in this crisis. Help me through this crisis. And I'm not saying that you don't need to go to Jesus when you're in a crisis. If you're in a crisis, you absolutely should go to Jesus. That's what he wants you to do. But what he wants you to do is not just fix your crisis, but he wants to restore your joy back to him. He wants to fix your joy. He wants you to have your identity in him. He wants to heal your wounds. He wants to heal your brokenness. He's a good shepherd. And he wants to give you what you actually need, and that's him. And he says, When I give you what you actually need, you won't want the other things as much as you think. I find it no mistake that every single week here, here at Integrity, we take the Lord's Supper. And it's no mistake that Jesus, in this text, calls himself the bread of life. Because every week when we take the Lord's Supper, what do we say? You take the bread, the bread represents the body of Christ that was broken for you on the cross. So when Jesus calls himself the bread of life, he's using this symbolically. And then Jesus, at at the Last Supper, when he says, take this bread that represents my body, he's saying, this is where... Satisfaction and joy comes from through my death on the cross. He says, this is why I want you to feast on my body. He even tells his disciples, if you feast on my body and you drink of my blood, and they're like, what are you talking about? He's like, this is, this is the body that's gonna be broken for you. And it's, it's gonna give you food that you'll never want to eat again because you'll be full, you'll be satisfied. If you drink the cup, the cup reminds you of the blood that Jesus has shed for you. You'll never thirst again. He's saying satisfaction and joy are found here. And the great thing that takes place in this text, specifically with the disciples, disciples in earlier in Mark 6 are asked to leave everything behind. And now at the end, in the middle of Mark 6, where the feeding of the 5,000 takes place, the disciples have their bellies full, and they're satisfied. They're satisfied because Jesus, following Jesus, he came through for them. And so if you are in this room right now, and you're in a crisis, or maybe you're just coming out of one, and you're wondering, are you going to come through for me? Jesus proves that he will come through for you through his broken body on the cross, through his shed blood on the cross. And he says, seek you first the kingdom of God, and all of these things will be added to you. He's saying, because I died for you, I'm proving to you that I'm going to come for, for you, not just in the crisis, but in all situations. But the first thing is you have to want the feast from the bread of of life. That's our hope this morning, Integrity Church. Where this morning are you hoping that Christ would come through for you? And would that thing that you're hoping for or longing for, would that be the very thing that would draw you to your ultimate need to feast on Christ, the bread of life? God help us. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful We're so humbled that you...